Amen. Take your copy of God's Word with me and turn this evening to Titus. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. Hear now the word of the living God. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. This is the word of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, O Lord, we pray that you would encourage our hearts once more this day when gathered in your presence, having sung your praises, we now hear your word. We pray that you would incline our hearts to obedience and to rest. Obedience to your commands based on resting in Christ alone. And we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's passage caused us to consider multiple themes, themes that we should add to our faith from Second Peter 1, verses 5 through 9. One of the themes that was spoken of there was the need to grow in self-control. Self-control or orderliness or soberliness is a theme that is all over the scriptures. Second Timothy one seven, Titus two six, first Peter four, second Peter one six, Galatians five twenty two. That theme of course is here in our text this evening, Titus two. Various translations render it differently And the version that we're using, it's rendered as soberly, that we should live soberly. Some translations likely may say self-controlled. But what is it to have self-control? This morning we talked about the need to have it, to grow in it, based on Christ and his work. But what is it? There are many helpful definitions. Perhaps consider this definition from Ligonier Ministries, just a average devotional kind of definition. Quote, to have self-control means that we behave in a manner appropriate to the given situation. It means we defer when it is appropriate to defer. It means we speak when we need to speak. It means that we control our tempers and do not blow up every time things do not go our way. It means that we ignore the minor mistakes of others instead of trying to prove that we are always right, end quote. Self-control really is one of the fruit of the Spirit. It is one of the virtues that we should add to our faith. But how do we cultivate self-control? I think in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we see three different aspects to self-control. Now make no mistake, 
The discussion of living a sober or self-controlled life is there. The theme, however, is in the midst of the two appearings of Christ. Notice in verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. And of course, towards the end in verse 13 of our text, what is it that we are looking for? The appearing of our great God and Savior. But sandwiched in the middle is a list of several realities. Realities that we are taught because of the grace of Christ. In fact, grace is pictured as a teacher, is it not? Look there. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that. It is God's grace that saves, but God's very grace is pictured in this text as our tutor, our teacher. One of the things that it teaches us to do is to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live in a self-controlled way. So let's consider three aspects from Titus 2 regarding self-control and specifically how to develop it. The first thing, brothers and sisters, is that self-control comes by grace. It comes by grace. Again, notice the first verse of our text. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. To all men. Christ has come. The message of the gospel has gone forward. It's a message that's being trumpeted from one end of the globe to the other. This is the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But this grace teaches us, it cultivates in us over time the denial of ungodliness and lusts and the growth of self control. Now, of course, the grace of God that brings salvation is God's unmerited favor. It is God treating us as Christ deserves. It is God's rich grace in Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf that is the ground of our salvation. And it has appeared. I don't have to convince you, I don't believe, but this is something that happens outside of us. We don't fashion grace. We don't make grace. We don't deserve grace. Rather, it has come to us from outside of us, and it has appeared to all men. The message is for all who will have it. This passage discusses the appearing of the grace of God in Christ and leads us all the way to that blessed hope, the great appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But notice in verse 12 what is said of grace. Grace, quote, teaches us that we should live soberly or self-controlled. Again, grace is pictured as bringing education to God's people. It is through the grace of God that you grow in self-control. It is through the grace of God that you have the ability, as we saw this morning, to deny self to control oneself. John Calvin, writing on this passage, says this, quote, Paul means that God's grace should instruct us so that we live the right sort of lives. Some are all too quick to use the preaching of God's mercy as an excuse for licentiousness, an excuse to keep on sinning, boys and girls. Calvin continues, while carelessness keeps other people from thinking about the renewal of their lives, but the revelation of God's grace necessarily brings with it exhortations to a godly life. 
Now make no mistake, self-control or sober living is in this text, but it is something that we are taught because the grace of God has appeared. It is not simply pure effort. If you want to grow in self-control, if you want to grow in that fruit of the Spirit, if you want to grow in living soberly, you need to understand that it comes through the grace of God in Christ. That self-control is not simply trying to be better, but it is an appropriation of the grace of God. Now, how does that work? Look at the text. The grace of God, which has brought salvation, has appeared, and it teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live in a certain way. So grace, which has saved us, speaks claims over us. So if you want to grow in self-control, I know this may sound a little bit too simplistic, you need to regularly remember the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you need to remember that that is the foundation, even as we saw this morning, for these fruit of the Spirit or these virtues. It is the grace of God that teaches. When you see the face of Christ in the scriptures, you hear of him, you see of his ways, you read of his holy law, you read of his sacrifice for your sins, you begin to see that this is a work of eternal significance. And not only has it saved me from an eternity in hell, it has provided me with what I need to put down the things that I used to cling to. Self-control, number one, comes by grace. But secondly, as the text teaches us, it comes by self-denial. Look at verse 12. Teaching us, again, that is the grace of God, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, or we should live in a self-controlled way. That word denying could be disowning, putting away, having nothing to do with. And what is it that we're denying? Ungodliness. These are outward behaviors. And worldly lusts. These are inward behaviors. We have desires, but outside of Christ, our desires are fully sinful. Perhaps not as sinful as they could be, but they're all tainted with sin. Inward sinful desires. And our salvation is not something that has provided freedom from inward sinful desires and temptations. Rather, it's a call with the Spirit's aid to deny our sinful desires. Self-control comes by the grace of God and Christ, but it also comes by denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We are to deny ourselves. If you want to grow in self-control, there are things that you desire that you will have to deny. If you want to grow in self-control, there are behaviors that you have lived in that you will have to deny. John Gill, the Baptist preacher of the early 1700s wrote these words about this text, quote, to deny these is to abhor and detest them and to abstain from them and have nothing to do with them. 
And this lesson of self-denial or of the denial of sinful self, the gospel teaches and urges upon the most powerful motives and arguments. And when attended by the Spirit of God, does it effectually so that we should live soberly, end quote. Grace is the teacher, and oftentimes the means is self-denial. Now, I want us to look specifically at what this says. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. There's an implication here, isn't there? We are going to have the temptation for ungodliness. That's still going to remain with us from without and oftentimes from within. The temptation is going to come, boys and girls, from outside of us. People are going to try to tempt us. The enemy is going to try to tempt us. But also, worldly lusts come from within us. And they will remain with us. You know, when a person is saved, they don't lose all of their sin. They lose a guilty standing before God from all of their sin, and they lose the reign of sin over them. But they wrestle with ungodliness and worldly lusts. And we could apply this to a variety of things. Maybe you're here, and your view is, your current thought pattern is, I have these sinful desires or temptations to ungodliness. Maybe I'm not a believer. I would press you into Paul in Romans chapter 7. The believer is going to be one who wrestles. The wrestling is good. Paul is going to tell Titus, deny these things. Meaning there are things you're going to have to deny. (laughs) But then there's the other kind of situation. Well... This is who I am. I have these lusts. I have these temptations. Surely God will love me in spite of them. You see, that's the other extreme. And what are we told to do with these worldly lusts, with this ungodliness? Deny it. Deny it. Put it down. We've said this before from this pulpit. The Puritans used to speak of two words. Mortification, putting things to death. Vivification, we don't really use that word anymore. Vivification, living unto something. Denying sinful desires, in some ways, is the means by which we grow in self-control. Let me give you a few examples. Think about how you speak? Is your tongue self-controlled? Your words? A lack of self-control with your tongue would look like this. I must take matters into my own hands and speak now. Versus waiting on God's prescribed ways of gentleness and justice, for instance. I, I have to show that I'm right about this issue. I have to get the last word A lack of self-control is, I'm going to speak now. Or how about your time? I will embrace laziness now versus working to serve. Now, make no mistake, there are parts of us in our words. We want to do it now. Or in our time, I want to be lazy now and I'll put off this thing that I must do until later. In both cases, we must deny 
those internal desires. Or just take the issue of sexual lust. It's the same pattern. I want it now. Versus waiting for God's timing. Really, in every area of a lack of self-control, the pattern is very similar. So how do we grow in self-control? Well, it is by the grace of God that we are taught that we deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and that we should live soberly or self-controlled lives, righteously and godly in the present age. Brothers and sisters, sin no longer reigns over us. Before Christ, we were led by our passions and lusts. We were led by them. We were carried along by them like a ship in the stormy ocean without a rudder. Now, with the appearing of God's grace in Christ, we are not ruled by them. Do you love Christ's grace? Live in it every day as it owns you and controls you. Every day we deny sinful passions and we live in self-controlled, reverent ways. And this is related to biblical ideals, isn't it? Temperance, for instance. Or being slow to anger, for instance. Or mastering one's self, for instance. Moderation with certain things, food, drink. All of these ideals really have a root in this need for self-control. Now here's a question for us to consider. The text says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly. Is this an individual thing? Or is it a communal thing? You know, we often think of self-control as an individual thing. I am not a person of self-control. Or perhaps you say, I am a person of self-control by God's grace. But there are a variety of scholars who consider this issue from a variety of angles. For instance, James Dunn writing about this virtue or this fruit says this, quote, it's not an ideal in itself that Paul lauds self-control, but because of its importance in community relations, in contrast to the unrestrained emphasis placed on the flesh, end quote. And what Dunn puts his finger on here, I think, is very, very helpful. Because Peter and Paul were writing in the first century, and they were writing in a day where there were a whole lot of other philosophical schools that praised self-control. It wasn't only the Christians that were speaking about self-control. One of the chief groups that spoke about self-control were the Stoics. They were lost. They were pagans. They were without Christ but they lauded and praised the virtue of self-control. And we need to remember, it's not only Christianity that presses this call towards self-control, but it is the means and the goal behind it. In their book, The Psychology of the Fruit of the Spirit, Dornier and Trier write these words. Quote, associating self-control with the capacity to rest, mainly physical temptation, often creates an individual emphasis 
for instance, when one needs to stop using harmful substances. But the broader semantic domain of self-discipline is linked to communal aspects. Passions need to be curbed, the tongue restrained, and one's anger contained in order to foster and maintain harmonious relationships, end quote. You see, even though the Spirit is forging within us the fruit of self-control, this virtue of self-control, we live in community. We are the people of Christ. And think about how a lack of self-control impacts your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just the virtue of being able to not eat too much, not speak too much, not be lazy too much. But it's the impact that it has as well on the body of Christ. For when you, for instance, take matters into your own hands with your words, you don't just damage yourself, but others in the body of Christ. So, self-control comes, firstly, by the grace of God. You will not develop godly self-control if you seek to do it outside of what God has done for you in Christ. But secondly, this grace of God that has appeared teaches us that we ought to deny certain things and live to certain things. Deny worldly lusts. Deny ungodliness. And that we should live in a sober or self-controlled way. And it's at this juncture that I think we also need to mention that what is in view in Titus 2 is the denial of sin. You see, this is not just the virtue of who can be the most in control of themselves. This is not a diet plan. This is not a workout plan. This is not a parenting plan. This is a soul-level issue. What we are denying is ungodliness and worldly lusts. That is what we're denying so that we can grow in self-control. And that's important because it's very possible to have the best diet, to have the best workout plan, to have the most organized schedule and not have a self-controlled heart. So it's by the grace of God that we are putting down ungodliness and ungodly and worldly lusts, and living unto the self-control that God in Christ is forging in us by his Spirit. We are not Stoics, brothers and sisters. We're not called to put down passions and emotions so that we can live a life of reason and demonstrate to the world that our homes can be in order, and that our diets and our workout plans can be in order. That's Stoics. We are Christians. We recognize that there is ungodliness and worldly lusts and that we still wrestle with these things and so we actually have to deny them. We have to say no to things. Let me put it to you this way. If you are living in Christ today and for the last week or two weeks or month, you can't really think of anything that you're saying no to, then you're not denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. If you can't think at all of something that you've had to say, I want to do this, but I'm not going to do this because of who I am in Christ, then you're not pressing into this call toward self-control. But remember, this call comes by the grace of God. 
You see, in any sermon like this, there are two extremes. There are those who recognize a staggering lack of self-control, and they want it. And their concern is, maybe that means that I'm not in Christ. Then there are others, on the other extreme, who can't think of the last time that it even really mattered to them whether they were seeking to be self-controlled. We want to be in the middle. Me seeking to deny ungodliness and worldly lust is not the ground of my salvation. It's Christ and him crucified. But because I know that Christ and him crucified is the way, the truth, and the life, that it's appeared, that I believe in this one who died for me, there's a call on my life to actually deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. So let's walk the middle of the road, looking to Christ every step of the way and saying, because of him, I'm going to say no to this lust, to this way of ungodliness. Now, before we look at the third and final thing, sometimes the outward aspects of our lives are important for us to consider. It it is part of our nature that if our lives are completely out of order outwardly, and yes, I do even mean things that we spoke of earlier, like care for our bodies, how we organize our day. That's not really what Paul is after. But if our lives outwardly are so out of order that we can't actually have time to deal with spiritual matters, then that's an issue. And it's also important for us to be modeling what self-control looks like. Listen, brothers and sisters, if, if your life is so all over the place and so much a mess that your children never actually see what simple decisions towards self-control and soberly living actually look like, then that's teaching them something. So we're not after outward change, but there is a little bit of a lesson for our homes in this ideal. The grace of God and denying ourselves. But thirdly, self-control comes by a better desire. Where am I getting that? Look at the next phrase. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you see how all of these phrases are working together. It's a long sentence in the original language. But listen to it. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us that by denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live in a certain way in the present age looking as we live in the present age for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's it's one phrase after the other. So our call to sober living or to self-controlled lives in some ways comes as we and even by the means of a better desire. What is that better desire? The blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The hope is the appearing of Christ. Now, Peter has just done this, but I want to take a moment and point out that Paul does it too. Look what he says in verse 13. Glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. It's another reference in the New Testament of the divinity of Jesus Christ. But our gaze is fixed toward a future reality and specifically to a person. 
And then we're given sort of a purpose clause. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now elsewhere in the New Testament, the work of Jesus is viewed as redeeming us, freeing us from judgment, from condemnation. If you're like me, who doesn't need occasionally in this life to cling to verses like Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But here, the work of Christ, his giving himself for us is pictured as doing what? Redeeming us from lawless deeds. Humanly speaking, Christ doesn't want you just not to be in hell. He also doesn't want you to be in sin. You see that in the text? He might redeem us from every lawless deed. It goes further. And purify for himself his own special people. Part of this redemption from lawless deeds and purification is that he's purifying us from a lack of self-control. Part of his aim is that I might be self-controlled. That I might not be stuck, enslaved to a lack of self-control. He's purifying me. He's redeeming me from the lawlessness of a lack of self-control. I want you to see that. Because so often we think of the work of Christ as just getting us into heaven And that's true. Every single person for whom Christ died will never see for all of eternity the condemnation of hell. But Christ had even a greater purpose that his people are redeemed from lawlessness and from impurity and that they grow in what? Zealousness for good work. What a glorious reality. Ephesians 2.10 says that similarly that we have paths to walk in that have been ordained by God. Paths of good works. Ephesians 2.10. So we are called in grace and Jesus gave himself to free us from every lawless deed. So how then does this relate to our self-control? Let's answer this question and we're finished. Well, self-control, as we've seen, is something that the grace of God teaches us. It's appropriated, really. We grow in it as we deny certain things and live to certain things. But all the while, look at where our gaze is. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Our desires are actually changing. We desire something greater than those things that we used to lust after. And that gaze is increasingly fixing our attention. It's changing everything. Have you ever been on a trip, a long road trip, perhaps through the mountains, and you don't quite know where you're going and forget that GPS exists for a moment? And you're driving and 
You come up and you see your destination over the, the hill. You see it on the horizon. And now that you see it, it changes everything. The roads become clear to you. This is the way that we need to go. Hopefully, it's, we've been going the right way and not, oh boy, like we're really lost. But you see it. And seeing it changes everything about what you're even doing right now. We're not going to go that way now. There it is. We're going to go that way. That's the destination. That's the goal. That's what we're desiring after. And so it changes every steering wheel turn that you make. Self-control is like that. Grace forges in us the ability by Christ to deny certain things and to live to certain things as we have a better and fixed desire, namely, the return of Christ. That's what we're living for. You know, all throughout the New Testament, the Christians are pictured more as longing for the return of Christ than they are as people who are going to heaven and not going to hell. They're longing for his return. So self-control comes when our gaze is fixed increasingly on that day. There will not be a day of self-denial here on earth that you will regret when that day comes. There will not be one moment for all of eternity where you say to yourself, boy, I'm thankful for Christ, but I really wish that I was less focused on growing in self-control for his sake. How do we grow in self-control? We don't do it like a stoic. We rest on his grace. How do we grow in self-control? We deny things. How do we grow in self-control? We have a better desire. And that desire frames everything. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that you would forge in us self-control, this fruit of the Spirit, this virtue that we are called to add to our faith in this life. We pray that you would grant us what we need to deny, even this week, deny worldliness, worldly lusts, ungodliness, to live unto Christ in light of his glorious appearing. Help us, we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.